Yeah, <laughs> now that our time is up, let's... Uh, Okay, uh, we left off in James chapter 4, and we've, we finished with verse 12. And remember, 11 and 12 are very important, they're very complex, but they talk about judgment. We're not to judge on the basis of our own law, our own personal take. We are allowed to judge on the basis of God's law, or God's word, because then again, it's not us judging, but God. So to announce God's judgment is not to judge yourself. Even then, we have to be careful with that because we can take God's law and use it in a personal and selfish way, can't we? Use it in a way that's meant to uh, shame and destroy our brother instead of admonish and lift them up. Okay, so the point is that there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And I think there, as in so many other places, James is um, speaking in a veiled way about Christ. We believe that he will come again to be our judge, that it's Christ who judges us. And so it is he who is able to save and to destroy. So we need to be careful not to sit on his judgment seat. At the same time, we need to be careful to be faithful to his word. Okay, then verse 13, he shifts gears. And we get the first, I think, of these come now sayings. There's two or three of them. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Okay. So this isn't just a matter of speaking or speech. It's a matter of perception and attitude toward life, right? I mean, James isn't legalistically saying, uh, you know, thou shalt not plan a, tri a business trip to New York and say you're going on it, right? That's not his point. His point is that there's an arrogance and a surety in a human worldview that says, I'm going to do X, I'm going to do Y, I've definitely got a tomorrow, I've definitely got a next day, I'm going to go to this town, I'm going to spend this amount of time there, a whole year, I know I've got a year, and I'm going to make a profit. And what this worldview is, though James doesn't come right out and say it here, is it's idolatry. Because you're thinking of yourself as if you were God. You control how long your life is, how profitable your business is, what you'll do, what you'll not do, as if you were God. He's admonishing them. He's saying, he's bringing us to our senses with verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, let alone a year from now. So there's a, there's a humbling that James is doing, causing us to realize our creatureliness. Though we think of ourselves very often as having, boy, I'm... 32 years old, I've got a guaranteed 50 years left, so I can live life accordingly. James would say, no, you don't even know what tomorrow brings. So get a dose of sanity. And that's where he says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Sometimes um, I realize when I hear those words that I perceive the world in a delusion. Because I've, li I've studied a lot of history and I feel like, and sometimes I, I'm shocked when on a website I have to fill in my age 
Um, you know, if you're getting like an 18 and older video game or something, not that I'd get one of those, um, you know, killing orcs and that kind of thing, but you have to put in your age, and sometimes I'm shocked when I put in 81 because I'm like, 81, really? That's so young, that's so, you know, this much, it's nothing. Um, and you just, all of a sudden you get a perspective of how brief our lives really are. And you, you meditate on what the psalmists say. I mean, in the blink of an eye, we're all going to be gone. There are going to be other people in this room, God willing. Or not. But a blink of an eye. I mean, we're a mist. We're a vapor. Uh, we appear for a little time and then vanish. And what the psalmist says is that when the Lord teaches us these things, he's teaching us wisdom to number our days and to live life accordingly. That's wisdom. The delusion that we're going to live forever, that we have lived forever, that, I mean, this way of thinking and perceiving that I know I fall into all the time, that's delusion. And James is calling his people, calling us out of it. And that's what verse 15 then about, is about. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Again, it's not a legalistic way of speaking. Like, before you say you're going to do anything, you have to say, well, Lord willing, right? I don't know, that kind of bothers me. I knew someone in my life who, like, they'd be like, oh, I'm going to McDonald's. Lord willing! And I said, oh, gosh, okay, fine. Um, anyway, sorry, pet peeve. But that, because the point isn't just saying it. The point is a perception, right? The point is a realization that everything we have is according to the will of God, according to the good gifts and graces of God, and to realize that that's what life is in its essence. To come out every once in a while of the delusion and see it for what it is. Okay, verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's not unlike Paul, uh, his argument to the Corinthians. James' argument here to his congregation is that they too have uh, fallen into some worldly arrogance. Some thinking of themselves as in the way of the world, in the way of arrogance, and it's wrong. And so he's calling them to humble repentance, calling them to confess their sins. Any questions on that section? That's a little unit. You can see that it begins with come now. And then another unit begins 5 verse 1 with another come now saying. It's just something James does here at the end. Let's go into that section then if there's no questions. Come now you rich. Okay, we've seen this at least two other times. Come now you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This is all rich people, including us. No, I'm just joking. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, uh, again, the rich, I think, I think maybe the most simple way to put this is in the context of Jesus' words, you cannot serve both God and mammon. So the rich are those who serve mammon. You can be a very poor person and serve mammon. Um, it's a very sad thing, but if you uh, spend any time in a casino town, you find out that there are rich people, or poor people who serve mammon. There are poor people who have their hopes, their dreams, their love, their trust in striking it rich, and their drug is their disease, and uh, though they're dirt poor, they serve mammon. Every 
beat of their heart. So um, the rich seem to be those who uh, serve mammon and not the Lord. Seem to be those who are, um, in other language of James, those who have friendship with the world. Not, uh, and, and therefore enmity with God. The rich are elsewhere described, remember if you go back, the rich are described as persecuting Christians, dragging them into court. Um, the, it seems the pastors are probably, but all Christians, probably pastors in specific, are warned not to show favoritism or partiality to the rich. Um, it is also, uh, <clears throat> back in chapter 1, the rich are introduced um, and, it, and they're introduced in this way for the it says let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits Yeah, we talked. I mean, we talked about the complexity of, of interpreting that, um, but it's. I, th I believe it's the beginning of painting that the rich ultimately lose everything they have, and their riches, the very things they treasure the most, actually upon death or upon judgment, serve as the curses. Right? Because it's like it's like you. Uh, it's like what you loved more than God. And now all that's been taken away and you have God and you have judgment and you have nothing and those things that you loved even more now haunt you. And that's where James, I think that's where James is going when he says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. In other words, the condemnation is that their idol let them down and that they chose that idol, they chose wealth instead of God and now that very wealth and its passing nature that it's corroded burns their flesh. It's part of their condemnation, part of their the hell they experience. So, is that right? She said, you don't realize that God is all you need until you realize that he is all you have. Ah, yeah. 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 You don't realize that he's all you need until you realize that he's all you have. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I like that. So you see, I mean, you see in chapter one, judgment ultimately assigned to the rich. We, we talked about the complexity of is that a brother, is that not a brother, whatever. Um, in the rich in uh, verse two are, are perhaps brothers. I mean, they're coming to the assembly, and yet then they also shift throughout that discourse of the early part of chapter two. They become those who drag you into court, those who blaspheme God's name, Right. So the rich have become iconic. It's not just Paul's or James is talking about anyone who has money, but it becomes iconic of those who seem to serve mammon instead of God. And then here in this last section, I think that's abundantly true, where he talks about um, them weeping and howling for the miseries that will come upon, upon them, uh, or upon you. And the reason for that is, look, there, I mean... It's again, it's this uh, reversal theology. The rich are comfortable in the world. They're buying and selling. That's saying, let's go here, let's go there. We're masters of our destiny, right? We have friendship with the world because the world's good to us. And then all of a sudden, James says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. It's pointing them to a future reality. 
Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Okay, then he points to some, uh, you have laid up treasure in the last days, and that treasure in the last days is wrath. So, I mean, the picture is like, you know, Scrooge McDuck uh, diving through his money vault. Anybody remember that 80s yeah, cartoon? Swimming through his, I'm going to spill that. Swimming through his, uh, his money vault. It's like, in J the way that James is talking about it, it's like, as much as that was joy for him, it will be judgment for him on the other side of the scale uh, come the judgment of God. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Doesn't mean, oh goody. It means the very treasure that you so honored is now corroded and, and will eat your flesh. So that's the picture that James is giving. Indiana Jones? Indiana Jones, and in the end when they see the spirit coming out of the ark, it looks so beautiful, and they're yeah. like, ah, oh, but in the end it's like, don't look, don't look, it's uh -huh. the spirit of God, uh -huh. It'll, you can't look on God, and, and it goes from beautiful to evil, Right. and then it goes around and burns everybody. Yes, yes, yes. That just reminded me of that, because it was beautiful to start with, and then it turned on. Yeah, it's the reversal motif, isn't it? Yeah. So that all the glory and honor and lot of this world is, is reversed in an instant, all the names that everyone knows right now will be forgotten in heaven or will be footnotes. And the names that nobody knows will be the names that everyone knows in heaven. I mean, it's a great reversal of history, of power, of importance. The first will be last, the last will be first. It's the whole upside downing of it all. The lowly will be exalted, the exalted will be cast down. The whole New Testament speaks this way. And really it's all embodied in the person of Christ. Because Christ was the Prince of Heaven, equal to the Father. And yet he humbled himself to become man, to be born of a virgin. And if that wasn't enough, he was obedient to death, even death upon a cross. While they were all taunting him and saying, come down. While evil men who deserved to be on that cross were crucifying him, the only righteous and innocent one there was. And yet he did it to be obedient. That's humbling himself. You see how the highest was brought low? so that he might take the lowliest and bring them high, so that we might be as he is. It's the great reversal. Okay, then in verse 4, James points uh, to the uh, fraud by which many people make themselves wealthy. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Okay, so judgment is coming upon all the little things that you didn't do, all the little uh, schemes and uh, frauds that you committed. All that is remembered by God and is counted up against you, um, those who reject God and serve mammon. Now, some, um, again, in that, di in that dialogue and discussion we've had is whether this is written primarily to pastors or to pastors or to congregation or... Um, this is another verse that gets a lot of ink spilled over it because um, the wages of the laborers, those who work in the fields, some people point and say, remember Jesus says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into his field. Um, so some people say here, look, this is, this is those, uh, particularly those Christians who are in the church, who are valuing wealth and money and who are not supporting the pastoral ministry or the evangelistic efforts uh, they're 
in other words, they're not supporting the church in the world. Okay, so goes the argument. So, so the point would be that the wealthy Christians are really false Christians, okay, who serve mammon and not God. And that would be evidence, the argument would be like where James says, your brother is naked and your brother or sister is naked, you don't clothe them or hungry, you don't feed them. You see you're rich, but you do nothing. Um, you, and then here you also uh, keep the wages that are deserved by the laborers who mowed your fields. You kept it back by fraud and they cry out against you. I don't know, that seems like a little stretch to me. It's possible. People argue it that way. Irrespective, it's a condemnation of fraud as those who uh, serve mammon always tend to get themselves into fraudulent or dishonest situations, cheating situations. Because that's what money demands. That's the love of money. Not, you know, some money that's the root of all evil, the scriptures say, but the love of money. And the love of money is so powerful that it just comes with it, with little frauds and thefts and twisting and shifts. You know, it's true. True. Okay, in verse 5, his condemnation continues. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Okay, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. And you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. That's like the fattening of the calf before the slaughter. So... Why are the, you know, if you're a rich person and you're fattening yourself and you're eat, drink, and be merry, and that's all you do and you think nothing more than you're like a cow being fattened for the slaughter. It's very harsh language. It's very offensive. I mean, he says fat. I guess people are, you can also say that people are spiritually obese. You know, that would be another way to put this. Because they, they'll eat and they'll consume and they'll do any, you know. But Christ? Nah. I think that I think that many people in our culture today are spiritually obese. They'll take a little of that and a little of that and a little of that and a double helping of that and then this book and then that thing and then and they just keep eating and eating and eating and fattening and fattening and fattening. They never have Christ. So they're fattened as for the day of slaughter. Then verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. This is one of the few places where I really disagree with the Lutheran study Bible. Um, the notes say that this is not a reference to Jesus but a reference to Naboth instead. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I think that, I think that um, you have not, you have condemned and murdered the righteous man is what it actually says. And I think that this is James' point. We've seen him do this before, right? Um, in fact, it had to do with the rich. Back in chapter 2, for example, there are several places in James like this, but let me just point out one for you. Remember in chapter 2, my brothers show no partiality. Okay, the rich and the poor and the rich men um, are the ones who oppress you and drag you into court, etc., etc. Um, but then he says, but in verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Now the poor man is, yeah, you've dishonored the poor man in your congregation, but that poor man is iconic of the poor man the man who emptied himself of all things and came into our midst, right? And that's, it's like what Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do unto me. It's as if James is also taking that the opposite way. Yeah, 
And if you don't, I know I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was hungry and you did not feed me. You did not do that for Christ. You did not do that for the poor man. I view that as a reference to Jesus. And I also then likewise here when he says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous man, also a reference to Jesus. And the riches oppression of the poor in their holding back the, the uh, fees that they owe, the mowers of the fields, um, in their luxury and indulgence while others are starving. They have condemned and murdered not just anyone, but Christ himself, because what they did not do unto the least, they did not do unto Christ. Which also think about this, if it's just a regular man, you have a problem calling him righteous especially the righteous man with the definite article, right? So I think here this is a clear reference to Christ. Now Naboth fits too, but really James is sitting there thinking of 1 Kings 21 and Naboth? I don't know. I think it's much more likely he's speaking about James. He does not, or speaking of Jesus, he does not resist you. That would also be Jesus. That's one thing that's rather shocking um, about the New Testament as you look at Paul's writings that Jesus continues to suffer. Um, his suffering for the atonement of our sins was once and for all, and it is finished. But he continues to suffer. Remember when um, he finds Paul on the road to Damascus, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my people, not my church, not Christians, but me. You see, whatever you do unto them, you do unto me. And I think that that's, and, and he doesn't resist, he suffers. That's who Christ is. And I think that this is what James is referring to. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. In other words, you're condemning and murdering Christ and he doesn't resist you when you do this to the poor or to the brothers in your midst. Okay, makes sense? Sure, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, yes. So is the uh, chapter 5 speaking to not Christians then? No, well, it's yes and no. <laughs> it, because what it's speaking of, it's speaking of false Christians within the church mm-hmm. and also those outside the church. So unbelievers who worship mammon, they're included as the rich, but also those in the congregation who are false Christians who are serving mammon and not God. No, because those those would be counted as the poor. Okay. I mean, in other, it's law and gospel, though. So, I mean, you may get st- struck by this, as any of us may get struck by it. Okay, that's it's So he's preaching law. So it can prick any one of our hearts. But that's a separate question than rhetorically what he's doing. And rhetorically what he's doing here is making a distinction and a condemnation of those who serve mammon instead of the Lord. Repent. <laughs> yeah, the point is if this pricks your heart, repent. That's, I mean, that's the whole point. Otherwise, he's not, why bother writing? Yeah, I mean, I, why, why tell someone they're condemned? You're condemned, have a nice day. I mean, this, yeah, there's nothing you can do. The scriptures, I mean, the scriptures always speak this way for the point of drawing out repentance and then forgiveness and reconciliation with God. But even as Christians, we need to repent. Yes. 
Yes. Okay. And and this is I mean this is addressed to the church, whether to pastors or the church. It's still the church. It's still a churchly book, and so we all hear this. We're all pricked by it, brought to repentance, etc. But I do think rhetorically it's it's white and black in a way that I don't think James. Let me put it this way: I don't think James' point is that we're all rich. You know what I'm saying? I don't think he's saying, "Come now, you who rich, who are rich," and you're saying, "Well, who's rich? Everyone, because you're all sinners." Like I just, I think that James' argument's a little more nuanced. To me, it seems like we're kind of all rich in Southern California. I know we well, that's true. Rich. Yeah. And so it seems like he's going to make it not say rich because we are all rich. All of the mentions are rich. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> well, I think there's more to it than that because, I mean. Again, someone can be very poor and serve mammon. So I don't want to get into the relativistic discussion of who's wealthy. Right. You know, maybe the wealthiest people in Abraham's day weren't anything compared to Bill Gates. I don't know. But were they still wealthy? So I don't want to get into a relativistic debate about who's monetarily wealthy. Even a poor person can be rich the way James means it, which is to serve mammon. Mm Okay, unbelievers obviously serve mammon, and believers can fall into that too. But I don't believe that James' point is, you know, the law stops every mouth. I don't think James' point is so everyone is serving mammon, so everyone is a rich person, so everyone needs to howl and weep because everyone has cheated their laborers. And but there is danger. What do you mean a danger? I mean instead that there is a danger for everyone at some time. It's not a... In, in other words, it can convict the Christians. Sure. Like it, can, it can prick your heart. We should all that's be examining our hearts. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's, what I'm, that's what I mean. I mean, as you read this scripture, there's like two levels of, of the scripture in this sense. Um, if you read Paul's... Uh, let me just put it this way. If you read Paul's exhortations... Right at the end of some of his epistles, um, to uh, provide for the ministry, or to be gentle, or to be patient, or to be long-suffering, or to restore a brother, or these kinds of things. Right? That can on on. Here's the level. As you read that, here's the first level. As you read that, that can pierce your heart. You can realize I haven't done those things, and that can condemn you. Right? And you want to repent and be forgiven. Okay, that's fine. And I think that that's what goes on here too. But then there's a deeper question. Does Paul, and it's an exegetical question, does Paul actually mean to elicit that response in you? I don't think so. There he just means to encourage you. Okay? So he means to encourage you, but it has the effect of condemning you. All right. Well, the effect of condemning you is still well and good because we're all sinners in need of repentance. But then the exegetical question is separate. And that's kind of what I'm trying to say with this. We can, we can read this and find ourselves all condemned. But then the exegetical question is, does James mean to condemn everyone with this, with this specific teaching? Elsewhere he does. But here I think he is singling out a group of people, a group of Christians, Christians, right? Quote unquote Christians, who are actually serving mammon and not God. And who are and who are evidencing this by saying, Oh yeah, the Lord our God, He's one. And to which James says, well, even the demons believe that, and they tremble. So, well, I'm forgiven, so I don't have to do anything. Your brother's naked. Your sister's starving. Well, I'm forgiven, so I don't have to do anything. 
Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You see, I think James has here, a narr- exegetically speaking, a narrower group of people in mind. He's focused on a group of people. And so that's my point. On the one level, does it hit us all? Yeah. On the exegetical level, I think here he's laser focused on a narrower group of people. How far do we take this, though? I mean, we know there are very destitute people in the world. We probably could give a great amount of what we have. We don't tend to do that. Right. Yeah. Why not? That's why we're guilty. Yeah. Let's not go there. <laughs> How about, how about this? We're 10 after. If you have to leave, uh, go right ahead and um, the Lord be with you. And I'll answer your question because it's kind of a complex topic. You know, how, what do we do? Um, Jesus says one thing. He says, the poor you will always have with you. Remember that? Yes. So there's not going to be any solution to it. Now, another text that is important is remember the rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Okay? Now, Right here, uh, you can tell if a if a pastor is uh, remotely orthodox or not on his handling of this text, because many pastors will tell you, "Yeah, that's exactly what we have to do," and yet he's standing there in his own clothes, right? And he's got his own house, and he's collecting his own paycheck. He hasn't given everything he has away to the poor. Well, they they try to soften that. I mean, ultimately, that man goes away sad and turns away from Jesus and walks away because he has great riches. And there's priority. Yeah, and then there's, and then there's discourse, though, about it because Jesus laments on how difficult it is for a rich man to be saved. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And yes, he means the eye of the needle and not that stupid gate theory. The eye of a needle, okay, it's easier for a camel to go through that than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. To which his disciples go, oh, yeah, well, we knew that. No, they go, what on earth? Who then can be saved? Yeah. I mean, they realize that what Jesus has just taught is that no one can be saved. And he says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. See, so this is how Jesus teaches the law and then grace. With God it's possible. He can forgive. He can restore. He can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He can give you the inheritance, but you can't earn it. And that's the whole point. So rather than telling Christians that we have to go sell everything we have, right, which we don't, um, we have to realize that Christ has sold everything he has for us, and there, therein lies our righteousness before God. Now we reflect on the constant encouragement of the New Testament to give to the poor, to care for those who are in need, both inside the household of God and outside. We are also, uh, as soon as we read in Acts that they took all their property and sold all that they had and hold it, held it all in communion, we are also reminded that the early church community retained the fourth commandment, or the fourth commandment, the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not steal. That is, the idea of personal property is not abrogated by the New Testament. In other words, Christians can retain personal property. So you don't have to give everything to the church and live communally, nor do you have to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. So where does that leave us? That leaves us realizing that our salvation is in Christ Jesus, who became poor for us, sold everything he had for us. And we are encouraged then to do likewise for others as we're able, but always willingly and with a joyful spirit. And there's, a, forget what it is, I think it's 2 Corinthians, um, where Paul talks about uh, giving, and that God loves the cheerful giver, and that we ought not compel one another by way of the law to give, but ought to encourage one another to give 
in the way that Jesus himself gets, but the cross itself, the Jesus salvific action, becomes the model for Christian giving. It's remarkable. Yes. Uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. and I'm talking more about, I mean, while that is true, I'm talking more about Christ emptying himself out for our behalf. Because if you think about it that way, we are absolutely poor. Not only are we poor, we're in debt. We're debtors to God. We owe God more than we can pay. And Jesus comes and empties out uh, his treasures, even his very life, covering our debts and giving us a surplus so that we no longer owe God, right? All our debts are paid. And he has emptied himself out to do this. So let me see if I can find the exact... Uh, I mean, because Paul does this. This isn't me making this up. I stole this from Paul. Let me just see if I can find the place. Yes, okay. Second uh, Corinthians 8, verse... Um, I mean, it's the whole chapter 8, but I'm not going to take your time with that. Let me just get you the main verses. Uh, chapter 8, verse 9 following for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich and in this matter I give my judgment this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work but also to desire it so now finish doing it well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have for the readiness is there it is acceptable according to what a person has not according to what he does not have for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened but that as a matter of fairness your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Not to Obama, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but here Paul's obviously talking about ch uh, churches caring for one another. And it would apply to individual Christians too. Mm -hmm. But it's, he's talking about churches caring for one another and he's encouraging them to give lavishly to the poor. And his whole point is that Christ is the very one who did this for us. So when we consider uh, what we give to the church, whether it's a tithe of 10% or whatever it is, we, I think the best and most evangelical reflection would be to reflect on Christ emptying himself out for us and to have that in our minds first and foremost as we prepare to make our offering for the sake of the church and those others. But it would be such a beautiful picture if those who were working and were putting into the church, what, you know, mm -hmm. we can put in more, and then when we don't have anything and we're in need, but the church mm -hmm. would supply for us. Mm -hmm. It's true, it, and I don't, I don't know, it's... Uh, the early church had some some semblance of that, yeah. but it wasn't long-lasting, you know. It's not, it's not long until church doesn't look that much different than it did today, I think. Yeah. Oh, all the water and pouring and yeah. draining, yeah, it's it's all normal. Yeah. That doesn't see I mean there's too much water going in. There's like it's a leak somewhere. No, but that's squishy. Sure about last night, but that's 